Behind you somewhere is the werewolf waiting to drink your blood. And you desperately desire the impossible. To escape. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to the backward world of Eastern Europe, where ancient superstitions still live in the minds of men. Tonight we escape with Jeffrey Household's grim story, Taboo. Among semi-civilized peoples, there has always been widespread belief in werewolves, those fantastic creatures supposedly able to turn from man or woman into wolf and back again at will. This belief is still widespread among the simple folk of eastern Hungary in the district around Zweibergen, high in the gloomy Carpathian Mountains. And I must admit, not without some reason. Before the late war, I often spent my vacations in that area, drawn to the dark loneliness by the pool of my Slavic blood. It was the same with her, perhaps, and our kindred ancestry no doubt drew us together. Her name was Kira Vaughan, and she was there with her husband, a pleasant young Englishman. They were obviously much in love, and I felt almost like an intruder when I found myself the only other vacationer in the village. However, they made me welcome and invited me to dinner. It was an excellent dinner. Won't you have some more strawberries, Mr. Shirabia? Huh? <laughs> Thank you, no, Mrs. Vaughan. I, I've eaten far too much already. I cannot say when I've had so excellent a dinner. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I'm sure I shall get nothing like it at the inn. I should hate to have to stay at the inn. You see, Shirabia, my wife is one of those delightful creatures who cannot stand to be shut in. She must run free, preferably in the woods, with her hair streaming in the wind. She's quite unusual. Indeed she is, my dear Vaughan. And you may count yourself most fortunate. Oh, I do, I do. Where else should I find so good a cook? Oh, very <laughs> true. I've never tasted um, venison quite like that tonight. Delightful. Thank you. Another of her little victories. She delights in outdoing the ordinary housewife. She disdains the village shop and gets her meat right off the hoof. Oh? You do your own hunting? Oh, dear, no. Not that. She's much too kind-hearted and loving a person for that. She's found a new source. The district game warden brings fresh venison to our door. Oh, it's not he, but his son. True, the game warden's slightly moronic son, who is, I'm sure, in love with her. Oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, not so. It's quite understandable. I'm beginning to fall in love with her myself. <laughs> you see, my dear. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Seriously, though, I can understand this wild desire to be free. This wish to, as you put it, run in the woods with the wind in your hair. It is some legacy of our Slavic blood, no doubt. Yours and mine and the game warden's moronic son. Somehow we feel at home in these dark forests. Oh, you too. Yes. And I don't. I confess it, I don't. There's something here that frightens me. Something strange and inhuman and... 
taboo. Darling. I'll confess something, Kiraviev. I don't like Kira to go out into these forests alone. Maybe I'm afraid that someday this emotional impulse of hers will get the better of her and she'll just disappear, like those two men last week. Oh? What was that? Have I missed some exciting happening? No, not really. Though you'd think so to hear the villagers talk. A fellow coming home through the woods after dark just disappeared. Probably got fed up with life here in the village and lit out for Budapest. And uh, what about the other one? Oh, yes. Well, a search party went out the next day to look for the fellow. When they got back, they found one of their party was missing. <laughs> Evidently, he'd taken the opportunity to skip out, too. Is that what you really think? Oh, why not, my dear? If those men had been done away with, it might have been by something supernatural. And there's no such thing. But might it not have been some wild animal? Oh, the bears around here are harmless and the wolves are not in pack. At any rate, there would have been some sign, some blood, track, something. There was nothing. They simply disappeared, vanished, skipped out. Richard, how can you be so careless? You see the paradox? My wife, who loves the woods, believes the fantastic tales of the villagers. I, who confess to finding the woods strange and frightening, do not believe them. Perhaps it is because you are frightened that you are afraid to believe them. Uh, what do the villagers say? Well, you know this district well enough. They're talking of werewolves and such tommyrot. Oh, it's utterly fantastic. Yes, to you, an Englishman, it would be. And it isn't to you? Fantastic, yes, I suppose. But perhaps Mrs. Vaughan and I, who feel at home in this forest, can understand and believe such fantasy a little more easily than you. Yes, I remember many times as a child, I dreamt of being an animal. I thought then that I would love it. The freedom of the forest. Exactly. That primitive instinct is so deep within us all. A heritage of some dim, distant past. In us Slavs, it lies closer to the surface. It takes very little to bring it to light. Yes, that is true. Well, you've placed my wife in a new life, Shuravyev. You'll have me suspecting her of changing into a wolf and running out to the forest to murder people. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh please, Bourne. <laughs> you take me too literally. And besides, it is a shame to spoil so delightful a dinner with so gloomy a conversation. Right. Shall we go into the living room? There's a cheerful fire in there. And... Oh, yes? Uh, what is it, Frida? Beg your pardon, sir. But a message just came from the village. Oh? What is it? They want you and Mr. Sheraviev to come down there now. They're organizing another search party. What? Yes. There's another man missing. <gasps> Kira! <gasps> Catch her, Sheraviev. She's fainted. <laughs> It was only then I realized that these people were under a terrible tension. I was to learn very quickly that the whole village shared it. Every able-bodied man in the district was at the inn when we arrived. The magistrate explained the situation. The grocer. He went into the forest late this afternoon, hoping to bag a blackcock for his supper. A little after dusk, a solitary shot was heard. That was three hours ago, and he has not returned. But only three hours? Isn't there a chance that he might still return? A chance, perhaps, but the other two did not. It will do no harm to search for him. We may still be in time to save his life. We searched most of the night, and then next morning, Vaughn and I went out again. We climbed to my favorite spot for hunting blackcock, and then followed the trail down to the village, the trail the missing grocer would have taken. I was beginning to be a little exasperated at Vaughn. He seemed to be so casual and uninterested, as if he were convinced that this one too had merely skipped out. 
but I underestimated him. He was a skilled tracker, and suddenly he did show some interest. Wait a minute. Someone has turned aside from the path here. Hmm? He was in a hurry. I wonder why. Hmm. I think you are right. There are some broken branches. Why? Why here? It's hardly likely anyone would go plunging into that thicket unless he had a reason. Uh, wait, wait. See that big white rock behind the thicket? When you're being followed, it's comforting to have a clear space around you. You'd feel safe up on top of that rock with a gun in your hands if you got there in time. You may be right. Let's go up. Righto. We forced our way through the underbrush to the rock. It was 30 feet high on the downslope side, and a hot spring at the foot of it bubbled out of a cavity scarcely two feet wide. We made our way up to the slope around it and came out on top. There was nothing there except for some ivy in the cracks and one small stunted tree. Aha! Look, look at that. Hmm? Where? The, the tree. The entire base has been shattered by a charge at close quarters. Perhaps that was the shot that was heard. Oh, you're right, it must be. They say... They say there is always a tree between you and it. What do you mean, it? The werewolf. <laughs> well, this must have been a baby one, then. That mark is only six inches off the ground. No, I think the man's gun went off as he fell. Perhaps he was followed too close as he scrambled up. About, uh, about here would be where his body would have fallen. Do you see anything? I don't. No blood stain. Yeah, well, wait, wait. Look, look here. Hmm? Oh, but it's just a tiny spot. Well, it's enough. It's blood, all right. And something more. A tiny bit of tissue. Let me see. Yes. Brain tissue. It must have come from a deep wound in the skull, made by something like an arrow or a bird's beak, or maybe even a sharp tooth. Mm-hmm. But where's the body? There is absolutely no other sign. No evidence of its being dragged off anywhere. No, I can't see any either. It's very strange. But at least we know one thing, Vaughn. This man did not just skip out. This man was dead or dying. When we brought our information back, the excitement of the village mounted. The peasants crossed themselves, and at the inn, the old tales were being told. That's old Weiss, the game warden, talking now. And Josef Weiss, his son beside him. The moronic son? Yes. The old man is a character, too. Listen. The biggest one my grandfather had seen, and it followed him in the forest. Time after time, he met it at twilight outside his cabin. And time after time, he fired at it point blank. But he couldn't hurt it. Then he pounded a silver panga and loaded his gun with it. One shot and the wolf disappeared. But next day, they found Heinrich the cobbler dying in his house with a beaten silver coin in his belly. Oh, Fools! You believe such stupid talk? Joseph! My grandfather used to tell the same story. Only when he told it, it happened to his grandfather. Anyone can see it didn't happen at all. Such things can't happen. Joseph, you call your father a liar? I do. Well, far from being a moron, Yosef seems to have more sense than the others. Mm, perhaps. Yosef, uh, uh, you're not afraid of this werewolf then, eh? I? No. Why not? The whole village is frightened. I'm used to walking alone in the woods at night. You've got to be a part of the forest. 
and you'll not be afraid of it. You do believe in werewolves, then, eh? I don't say a man can turn into a wolf, no. But I can understand why he'd want to. Hmm. Your theory again, Shravyev. Yes. I... I think I understand that too, Yosef. But what does it feel like? It... It feels as if the woods had got under your skin and you want to walk wild and crouch at the knees. Yes. I think he's perfectly right. And uh, you, uh, you explain it by some primitive urge? Possibly. There may be many reasons. Physical hunger could be one. We sometimes forget that man was once a fleet-footed hunting animal with all the necessary instincts. Hunger? Ah, yes, we all know about that. About what it can do to a man. Ah, I've been trapped in a cliff for five days, I know. None of you have suffered hunger as we did in the prison camp during the war. None of you knows what it is to eat. Joseph, no. let's not talk about it. He, he gets so upset remembering. Well, we'll have to go on searching for the body and for the werewolf. You'll not find it. Not until you arm yourselves with silver bullets. Perhaps it is gone now, whatever it is. The search parties may have frightened it away. It wasn't frightened by the first search party. It simply took one of them. Now it is still here, and it will strike again. You may be sure of that. The whole village believed that Josef Weiss was right. They traveled in the woods by twos now. No one went alone. For a week, village life was disrupted. The men beat the forest. The women tried to comfort each other. Kira wore herself out trying to be useful. The village women could not help loving her. But there was something else. Something strange. One day I spoke to Frida, the maid, about it. Ah, yes, she is a strange one, Mr. Sharivia. Even now I have seen her going out to walk alone in the woods at twilight. The women in the village think she is possessed. What do you mean, possessed? I... I hesitate to say, sir. Come, tell me. They are beginning to say... Sometimes the werewolf can be a woman. At first, the suggestion seemed so ridiculous to me that I hesitated to speak of it. But then I decided to tell Vaughn before this rumor could reach Kira herself. He was naturally much upset. That settles it, Shiravev. We've got to do something. Something, yes, but what? There's only one thing we can do track down this supposed werewolf. But that's what we've been trying to do for a week. How can we it's do... It's really very simple. We'll offer him bait. Bait? Who will be this bait? You and I, Shravyev. If you're game. I... Yes, of course I'm game. Good. But how? Are you going to tie me to a tree and watch out with a gun? That's about right. Only we needn't tie you up. And since it was my idea, you can have first turn with the gun. Are you a good shot? Right. This is no time for false modesty. Yes, I'm a good shot. Very well. It'll be night, and we'll have to shoot with only the moonlight. Where do we go? To the rock? Exactly. And the sooner the better. Tonight? Tonight. And say nothing, absolutely nothing, to anybody. Especially to Kira. I understand. This is between us. Either we win, or we simply disappear. 
It was difficult getting away without telling Kira what we were going to do. She seemed to sense that something was wrong and she sat staring after us with strange, angry eyes. In the village, Vaughn and I parted and made our ways to the rock separately. I reached there first and settled myself on top of the rock, almost covered by the ivy, the gun across my knees. Presently, Vaughn appeared on the path and I gave the signal that I was there and ready. trap was set. In the eerie stillness of the dark forest, we waited. Bon paced slowly on the path. I kept the gun sight trained a yard in back of him as he walked. Minutes passed in silence. Hours went by. Nothing happened. It was almost midnight, the end of our vigil. Bon waved his hand and started off down the trail. He would go fast in case he was followed, taking a shortcut down an old timber slide. He'd be in the village in ten minutes. I was to follow presently. And then suddenly I got an intense feeling of dread. I was alone on the rock. My spine tingled and then I heard it a quick rustle in the ivy behind me. Something brushed my face. I... It was only a bird. A night bird had lit in the ivy and now swooshed past me and flew away. My nerves were still tingling when I got back to the village. Next day, when I went to see Vaughn, he gave me a warning glance. Kira was suspicious. I could see the question in her eyes when she greeted me. So, here is the other culprit. Which of you is most to blame for keeping such late hours? Why... I suppose to keep peace in the family, I, I should say it is I. No, you can't get him off that easily. I'm the only culprit, my dear. You see, I've never hunted deer at night. I asked Shurabiev to help me. I suppose you shoot the poor things while they sleep. Oh, no, while they're having their dinner, if possible. <laughs> You're cruel and heartless, both of you. Oh, it's no use letting her start an argument, Shurabiev. Uh, I'll go get us a drink. Oh, yes, thank you. I'd like that. Why, why do you look at me like that? Was the hunting good last night? No, not very. We didn't get anything, as you see. I'm afraid you'll still have to depend upon Josef for your venison. Where did you hunt? Why, simply in the forest. Nowhere in particular. You're not telling me the truth, are you? My dear, I, I don't know what you're thinking, but I assure you... Oh, never mind. I suppose it is best I don't know. But take care of him, please. Of course I will. If anything should happen to him. But what could happen? You know. You understand these things. That night I was the bait. And I confess, walking there on the moonlit path, the dense undergrowth pressing close on both sides, the forest all around me, that I felt a strange terror. But nothing happened. Once, a bear ambled across the path, paused, sniffed, and disappeared into the brush. Then a little later, I thought I saw a flicker of white in the clearing below, but it never reappeared, and I decided it must have been a ripple of grass in the moonlight. At midnight, we returned to the village, and I was beginning to wonder if our trap would ever be sprung. We must keep on, Shurabiev. I have a feeling that... Tomorrow night, perhaps, or the next night. I'm game as long as you are, but so far we've only lost sleep. I've got to keep on. 
Have you forgotten about Kira? The things they're saying about her? No, of course not. But surely these people would not do anything to her. It's not that. It's what it might do to her spirit if she were to hear those insane rumors. She's so sensitive. I, I don't like to think about it. Then shall we go out again tomorrow night? Yes. You must come to dinner, though, first. Vice is bringing down more venison. Kira will want you to come. All right. Till tomorrow night, then. After dinner, we went out for our third night on the rock. Vaughn was the bait tonight and I the watcher. The forest was alive with sound. A deer coughed. The bear came ambling back as woolly and harmless as a dog. I was watching him when suddenly he paused and sniffed the air then disappeared into the trees. The animal sounds quieted one by one and a tense stillness fell over the forest. My hand tightened on the gun. Then suddenly I saw it. That flicker of white moving fast through the trees. It was coming up the path toward Vaughn, a soft, bulky white blur coming surprisingly fast. Vaughn's back was turned. He did not see it. My finger tightened on the trigger. It was only a few yards away when he turned. Kira! I started to press the trigger. No, Shara, no! Richard! Kira, what are you doing here? Oh, darling, I was looking for you. I looked last night, too. Oh, Richard. Kira, you shouldn't have. It was foolish, terribly foolish. Richard, there was something after me. I know it. That's why I was running. Kira, you shouldn't be out here alone. But what about you? Where's Chiraviev? He's up there on the rock, covering me with his rifle. I'm perfectly safe. I'll show you. I'll hold out my handkerchief, like this. Now, Chiraviev, put a hole in that. I stared for a moment at the white square of handkerchief, then at the white of her coat. My lips were dry. My finger felt numb on the trigger. Come on, Chiraviev, the handkerchief. Please, God, don't let me miss. There, you see, my dear? I'm perfectly safe. They went down the path together, and I followed after a moment. A hundred yards from the timber slide, I knew I was being followed. Even before I heard something in the brush behind me, I stopped and turned around. It moved past me, cutting off my retreat. Now I stood alone in terror, but it was still in the brush. If only I could make the timber slide. I got down safely. I went straight to Vaughn. He came out of the house to talk to me. I told him what had happened. His reaction surprised me. Shuraviev, I'm sorry I had to leave you up there to face it alone, but I had to bring her down. Of course, I know that. And you must believe this. She never left me. We came down together, arm in arm. We came straight down. You must believe that. But of course, why should I think differently? Then, then you must realize, whoever it was up there in the brush following you, it couldn't have been Kira. Good heavens, Vaughn. Do you think I believe that preposterous story? Well, didn't you? Even up there on the rock, when you hesitated about firing at the handkerchief, didn't you believe it might be Kira? No. Why, no, of course not. But I did. Vaughn knew my thoughts almost better than I knew them myself. Yes, that was why my lips were dry and my finger numb when I pressed the trigger. I had refused to admit it even to myself. And now was I sure, even now. That night, Vaughn was excited. We're going to get it tonight. After last night, it'll be there waiting for us. Yes, I think you are right. But if you are, we wouldn't want anyone else to come walking in on us. It might cause confusion. Don't worry. Kira has promised to stay at home. She says we're doing our duty and she won't interfere. 
Do you think this is our duty? No. Neither do I. I never feel that anything I enjoy can be my duty. And now, I really enjoy this. Tonight, I'd like to be the bait. No, it's my turn. I won't give it up. Besides, if it's the revenge you want, you have the gun. That's so. All right, then. Tonight, you'll be the bait. That night, for the first time, I regretted ever getting into this mess. As I paced up and down the path, my nervousness grew. Tonight, it would surely come. I felt it. But would Vaughn shoot straight and quick enough? The hours went by. Clouds kept scudding over the moon, leaving me in deep darkness for minutes at a time. I was really beginning to be frightened. Then a fraction of a second before it happened, I knew it was coming. There was a hot breath on my neck, a crushing weight on my shoulder, something hard against my skull, and the crack of Vaughn. Vaughn! Vaughn! Shravyev, are you all right? Yes, I think so. What was it? A man, a winged. Come on, I'm going in after him. All right, I'm coming. Vaughn, where did he go? I can hardly believe it, but he went right into this hot spring under the rock. But there's hardly opening enough for a rabbit. He went under the water. Come on. Wait, Vaughn, I'm coming with you. We plunged into the spring, wriggling our way forward, not knowing what to expect. Vaughn held the rifle high above the water, but there wasn't room enough for our heads. We had to hold our breath and plunge forward. Luckily, it was only a few feet. I emerged and took a breath. Then I heard Vaughn fire. I've got him. Where? Shine the flashlight. There, at the other side of the cave. Yes. Who would have thought there would be a cave here? Or that anyone could have gotten through that spring. It was a perfect hiding place. Yes, but it does him no good now. Turn him over. Let's see who our werewolf is. Yes. What? It's Weiss. Joseph Weiss, the game warden's son. Why didn't we think of that? We all knew he was not quite sane. More than that, he almost told us. Remember, he said, I do not believe a man can turn himself into a wolf, but I know why he'd want to. Yes, and he described the feeling to walk wild and crouch at the knees. He knew that feeling. He knew it too well. Beside Josef Weiss, we found a murder weapon. It was a patented animal killer, a heavy, heavy iron muzzle that gripped the scalp, a heavy spike that was released by a spring. His hiding place was even more perfect than we had supposed. When the magistrate investigated, he found a passage from that cave which led underground for more than a mile, and finally to the game warden's house where a ladder led into his cellar. Undoubtedly, Weiss found that dry underground river one day and realized he could use it. Perhaps that is what caused his mind to snap. Yes. It released a long pent-up spring in him, like that weapon he used. He saw that he could run in the woods like an animal, disappearing and reappearing with perfect safety. It even offered a place to bury his victims without a trace. And so your theory proved correct, that there's a murderous primitive instinct lurking in some people. Yes. Well, it's all explained excepting what he did with the bodies. It would serve no useful purpose to speculate on that now. Yes, I suppose you're right. Kira, you haven't said anything. Why did you have to shoot him? Kira, he was a murderer. He tried to murder Shiravyev. Is it murder when a wolf kills? A dumb animal? Frightened of intruders? Kira! You understand what I mean, don't you, Shiravyev? You understood that night when you shot the handkerchief. 
Just as I have. It might have happened to any of us, you see. Kira, what do you mean? Take me away from here, Richard. Just take me away quickly. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and tonight brought you Taboo by Jeffrey Household, adapted for radio by John Dunkel with Paul Fries as Shiravyev, Marta Mitrovich as Kira, and Morgan Farley as Vaughn. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Next week... You are standing on a bridge over Owl Creek with a noose around your neck. You have only a few seconds left to live. A few seconds left to plan your escape. Next week, we escape with Ambrose Bierce's famous story, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Good night, then, until the same time next week when we again offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. We'll return to Escape Theater right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our show. You are standing on a bridge over Owl Creek, a noose around your neck. You have but a few seconds left to live. A few seconds left to plan your escape. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to the war between the states and a muddy stream in Alabama as we recall one of the great short stories in American literature, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Pierce. man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down through the ties at the swift water 20 feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrist bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. He watched a piece of dancing driftwood racing down the current beneath his feet. He thought... If I could just free my hands, I might throw off this noose and dive into the creek. If I swam underwater, I'd be safe from their bullets. If my wind held out, I could make the southern bank, take to the woods, and get away home. Peyton Farquhar, Alabama planter, stood at the end of a plank. A captain of the Union Army and a sergeant stood at the other end. When they stepped aside, the plank would tip upward, 
and Peyton Farquhar, Confederate spy, would slip between the ties to hang above the muddy water of Owl Creek until dead. Even in this far outpost of Sherman's march to the sea, the formalities of death are observed by these men who are most familiar with him. The captain's company is drawn stiffly at attention along the tracks on the northern side of the bridge. The lieutenant stands erect on the bank of the stream, the point of his bared saber scraping the gravel on the roadbed. Peyton Farquhar is being ushered into the Confederate beyond with every Union amenity. The captain stands aside. Now only the weight of the bulky sergeant counterbalances Peyton Farquhar at the end of his thin board. They say that this is the moment when all the past events of your life tumble into your memory. But how could anyone know? Who has come back from the dead to tell what dying is like? I don't recall any childhood memories now. The past does not engulf me in this naked moment. I'm only aware of what's here, now. Those Yankees lined up on the bank. His captain's tired eyes. That turkey buzzard circling up there, waiting for me. And that noise. That beating, driving sound like a distant engine. A pump. The roll of thunder on a summer evening. Coming closer. Getting louder. Choking me. It's your heart, of course, that you hear, stepping up its cadence, pounding under the forced draft of fear. Now you see nothing, remember nothing, sense nothing, but this strangling, suffocating beat of your own heart throbbing its final protest. You stand there, erect. The work is nearly at an end now. The captain draws his sword, flourishes it to a carry, sings out a command. The men on the bank smartly spread their legs, thrust hands forward over the rifle barrels. The sergeant on the end of the plank takes one step to the left. The plank tips forward. And Peyton Farquhar drops between the timbers of Owl Creek Bridge. It takes longer to tell it. As you drop downward, you lose consciousness. You are as one already dead. Then you awaken sharply in pain to feel, not to think, just to feel. The cutting pressure on your throat, the agonies of pulsating fire shooting from your neck downward. To feel the fullness, the congestion, the head bursting with suffocation. Distantly, beyond, outside of yourself, you hear a splash. Remotely you sense cool, wet, green darkness. The rope has broken. You have fallen into the stream. Thinking returns slowly. You know for the moment you are safe from drowning because the rope around your neck tightly keeps the water from your lungs. Then I shall die hanging at the bottom of a river. And that's absurd. If I can get my hands free, I must get my hands free. Come, Peyton. They can't lick you. 
try again. Once. More. Good boy, the rope's given. Again. Try once. More. That does it, my boy. Now, the rope around your neck. You must breathe when you come to the surface. You must breathe quickly. Or if they haven't hanged you and they fail to drown you, you can't let them shoot you. Loosen that rope around your neck. You must get it loose. Now. <laughs> it takes so much longer to tell. You are now in the fullest possession of your senses. And again, time stops. You feel the ripples of the water upon your face and hear their separate sounds as they strike. You see the trees on the bank and the leaves and the veining of each leaf and the very insects on them. The locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig, the prismatic colors of the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass. You hear the humming of the gnats, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs. A fish slides beneath your eyes, and you hear the rush of its body parting the water. All this you see and hear in an incalculably infinite instant of time. Then you hear something else. There he is! Down there, Somebody! Let's come! Go! Huh? Steady! Hey! <gasps> you dive deeply, but above the ringing in your ears, you hear the volley of the rifles. And as you rise toward the surface, you meet shining bits of metal singularly flattened, the distorted and spent bullets oscillating slowly downward past you. One catches in your collar and it feels uncomfortably warm. You snatch it out. And this gray piece of Yankee lead reminds you of the gray uniform of the soldier who is responsible for you being here. You recall that it was only night before last when the soldier had ridden up the driveway as you and your wife sat under the magnolia trees in the cool twilight. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Corporal. I uh, wonder if I might trouble you for a glass of water, sir. Why, of course, Don't I'll... Don't disturb yourself, Peyton. I'll go fetch it. You're most kind, ma'am. If you'll just indicate the well... Nonsense. You just sit a spell with my husband. You look as if you could do with some rest. Yes, ma'am. Reckon I could. I'll be back in a jiffy. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, whose command are you with, Corporal? Colonel Tolliver, sir. 13th, North Carolina. We get so little news down here. How are things going at the front? Not good, sir. The Yankees are getting ready for another advance. They're repairing the railroad. Got it in shape almost to Owl Creek Bridge. And they got an outpost there. Once they can run the trains beyond the bridge, there's nothing to stop them between here and Atlanta. Then why hasn't the bridge been destroyed? The military couldn't get near it. A civilian might. Owl Creek Bridge. That's not far from here, is it? Less than 20 miles. Uh, you say they have an outpost there. On which side? The other side. Nothing on this side but a couple of pickets. Half mile out on the railroad. And a single sentinel at this end of the bridge. And that bridge is important? Sure is. What if it were destroyed? Hold up the Yankees for several weeks. 
Suppose a man, a civilian like myself, should elude the picket post and get the better of the sentinel. What could he accomplish? Well, I was there a week ago, just before we had to pull out. There's a heap of driftwood come down in last winter's flood and caught on the trestle at this end. Looked mighty dry and tender to me. I see. A fellow with enough gumption might get through and set fire to it. It ought to burn like tow. Yes, it should. Of course, a fellow'd have to have plenty of gumption. The Union commander's promised to hang any civilian caught fooling around the railroad. Here's your water, Corporal. Right out of the spring house. Thank you kindly, ma'am. <sighs> My, it's cool and nice. And here's a smidgen of cornbread. I thought you might be hungry. I'm mighty grateful, ma'am. It's ladies like you that keeps the South together and fighting these days. Oh, my, what a nice compliment. It certainly is. Well, I reckon I better hit the leather. I got a lot of riding ahead of me tonight. Good luck to you, Corporal, and uh, thank you for the information. You'd be taking a chance, sir, but you couldn't do a greater service for your country. I'll remember that, Corporal. Goodbye, ma'am. Goodbye, Corporal. Goodbye, sir. Many thanks. Goodbye. Peyton. What was he talking about? What, my dear? The corporal. What did he mean by service to your country and and, and, and taking a chance? Oh, nothing. Peyton, tell me. It was nothing, really, my dear. Peyton Farquhar, if you're fixing to take any chances for our country, I want to know about it. Now, you just speak your piece. There's nothing to say except I'll be going away for a day or two on a little trip. Is it dangerous, Peyton? Not very. You'll be back? Yes, my dear. I promise you, I'll be back. You break the surface of Owl Creek for a second time. And now you're much further downstream, further away from the Union soldiers on the bridge reloading their guns, the ramrods flashing in the morning sun. That captain won't make the same mistake again. He'll order them to fire at will. Heaven help me, I cannot dodge him. Another more terrible sound, cannon. They've trained a cannon on you. And close. Next time I'll use a charge of grape. Rifles and grape covering the water from bank to bank. I'm done for then. Then something seemed to grab you, and you're whirled round and round, spinning like a waterlogged top. You're caught in a vortex, a whirlpool. The water, the banks, the distant bridge, the soldiers become indistinct blurs. And again, you're helpless. You feel dizzy and sick to your stomach. Just as you felt last night when you crept up the bank toward the lone sentinel on the south end of the bridge and discovered that the sentinel was not alone. There he is, boys. Grab him. Uh, Got him, Sergeant. Ah, well, Mr. Peyton Farquhar, we've been expecting you. How did you know my we name We got was... waves. But look here, yeah, I'm a civilian. I Save just... your breath and thank you, Maker. We didn't shoot you in the back. We don't do things that way up north. You'll get a trial. Everything fair and square. Bring him along, man. The whirlpool spins faster and faster. A sharp piece of driftwood tears at your coat. The churning brown water chokes you. You know there is nothing you can do. As you had known it last night, when they shoved you into a tent near the bridge to face the infantry captain with the tired eyes. There he is, sir. Right on schedule. Good work, Sergeant. Is this the man, Lieutenant? 
That's him. What? You're the corporal who stopped at my plantation last night. That's right, Mr. Farquhar. But I'm not with the 13th North Carolina Volunteers. Mr. Farquhar, this is Lieutenant Saltonstall, intelligence officer, 5th Massachusetts Regulars. You've trapped me. You deliberately led me into a trap. I'm a civilian and a planter. Yes, and also a southern patriot caught in the act of espionage. You can't prove it. We don't have to. This is the most despicable, the most... This proves once more that honor is a stranger in the north. I'm too tired to listen to a recital of the code of a southern gentleman, Mr. Farquhar. I'm afraid the distinction between your ethics and my lack of them would escape me this evening. But why have you done this? Why have you deliberately trapped me? The best way to eliminate civilian resistance is to lure it into the open. You fell for the bait. Too bad. Now look here, it's my constitutional right Which, to... which constitution? The Constitution of the United States or Jeff Davis's? You insulting Yankees. Remember your manners, sir. I demand a trial. You've just had it. Post a guard over him, Sergeant. Yes. We'll uh, hang him in the morning. Something tears at your face, scratching, and you realize that the whirling has stopped. You open your eyes. You're lying on the southern bank of the stream, out of sight of your enemies. Safe. The gravel which has scratched your cheek now seems soft as new-picked cotton. The forest around you is a garden of luscious beauty, reeking with a heavy perfume of freedom. Even the whiz and rattle of the final charge of grapes screaming through the treetops seems a benediction from the baffled cannoneer. You leap to your feet and run into the woods, south, towards home. Your neck is swollen and throbbing with pain. You carry it cocked toward your left shoulder as you push through the matted brush. All morning you tear your way through the undergrowth. Your jacket is tattered and your face crisscrossed with bloody scratches from the brambles. Every few moments you stop. You stop to listen for the sound of dogs. But all you hear is the sleepy buzz of the forest. And the blood throbbing through your heated brain brings another thought which is an insult. No dogs. You are not even important enough to the Yankees for dogs. It's nearly noon now, and for half an hour you've been plunging through a swamp, waist-deep in green ooze. Your neck hurts constantly. Your head throbs and your tongue is thick. It tastes like brown cotton. Gnats swarm before your eyes, catching in your eyelids. Mosquitoes buzz in your ears, drill deep in your hands and swollen neck. You cannot go any longer. You slow down. You stop. You reach toward a palmetto root for support, and it slithers from your grasp and slides softly into the water. Water moccasin. Fear finds you at last. Terror, which stood aloof when you fled the executioner's bullets now embraces you with clammy unction, a water moccasin, the deadly cottonmouth. Now each branch and root seems to writhe under your glance. The swamp is undulating with certain death. You plunge on through the dark, stinking ooze, on and on, tripping, stumbling, never stopping, for terror rides your back, flogging you with a whiplash of fear. Master Peyton, fiddles a fiddle and jig time. You just drink this here up, tea, Master Peyton. Thank you. 
Thank you. Jethro. Yes, sir, my Peyton. What are you doing here? I live here. You live... Where am I? What happened? I was battling my dog out home through the swamp with a mess of catfish. I sees you lying out there on the bank in front of my cabin. Jethro, I heard... I, I, I thought you were dead. Of course you thought Jethro was dead. You knew he had consumption when you sold him. You knew he couldn't last long and he wasn't earning his keep. His wife and his daughter had carried on some at first, but after a while they calmed down. And last you'd heard... Jethro was dead. <laughs> you thought I was dead, Mars Payton? Why, sir, don't you know what's happened to me? I'm free. I'm free at last. So, news travels fast. Even in the middle of this backwoods swamp, this lonely black has heard of Abe Lincoln's traitorous emancipation proclamation. And they believe it with the faith of children. Yes, sir, I'm free. I expect pretty soon my woman, my little gal, come along and join me. Yes, yes, of course they will, Jethro. I say, Mas Peyton, they will. Yes, yes, indeed, they're both fine. Your, your daughter's growing into a young beauty. Miss Fark was brought her into the kitchen, beginning to train her for the house. Well, well, what do you think of that? Hmm, hmm. And my woman, she still sings pretty. Yes, Jethro. Sundays at meeting time, we can hear all the way up to the big house. That woman's voice is pretty in all the angels. Jethro, I, I don't know how to say this, but I really was sorry about having to sell you. But there wasn't anything I else... I understand, Miles Payton. Don't pay it no mind. I, I done forgive you long ago. Yeah, I have? Sure. Don't the Lord tell us to forgive those who trespass against us? Don't the Lord promise us we shall be free? Ah, don't you worry none about my speech. <laughs> you know, quiet that spot. Quiet, chicken, quiet, you. <laughs> Must have heard Razorback in the brush. No, sirree. Look, my Peyton. There's a horse coming down the road. A horse? Look there. Soldier. One of our soldiers, Corporal, look like. Jethro, you got to hide me. Why's I got to hide you, my Peyton? Don't ask so many questions, you insolent... My Peyton... You forget, I, I'm free now. Well, then, as an old friend of mine, please don't ask any questions. Just hide me. Don't tell that soldier anything. Well, sure. I reckon I can do that for an old friend, Mars Peyton. Here, here. You get down on this here bed. That's it. Put the covers over the side. There you are. <laughs> Snug as a tick in a rabbit's ear. Remember, don't tell him anything. Have you come this far just to be turned in by a wool-gathering black who talks crazy? If Jethro knew this gray-clad corporal was really a Union lieutenant, he'd guarantee his freedom by turning you in. Even so, he bears you a big enough grudge to turn you in anyway. Unless, of course, he's planning to dispose of you himself. Yes, that's it. That's why he talks so silly about the Lord and forgiveness. He's going to do you in himself. Well, if you run into him, don't tell him I was looking for him. Yes, I remember not telling. Just keep minding your own business, Uncle. you live longer. Yes, sir, I sure will. <laughs> you can come out now, Mars Peyton. I declare, I don't understand none of this. You says not tell him you're here. He says not tell you he's been here. What's this all about, Mars Peyton? Oh, it's nothing, Jethro. Nothing. I, I owe the man some money. I'm not ready to pay it yet. Oh, I see. I wouldn't know about that. Money something never bothered me like it 
bought her some. Money and me has always been strangers. What's he mean by that? Money's never bothered me like it's bothered some. What's he picking up that knife for? Jethro, what are you going to do with that knife? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just fixing to slit up some of them catfish you got in a dugout. Look like you could do with a little food, Mars Payton. Oh, no. No, thank you, Jethro. I, I, I really got to be on my way. I want to get home by sundown if I can. Sure wouldn't be no bother to cut up a couple of cats. <laughs> no, thank you, old friend. If, if you'll just tell me which way I should go to get home. Huh? Well, I don't rightly know, Mars Payton. I reckon from the way the sun's reclining, be down the road that way. Quite a tolerable piece. Yeah, that should be about right. I, I never been back, you know. I never tried to go back since I've been free. Yes, I know. But uh, I reckon it won't belong to my woman. My little gal comes here to me. Of course. Uh, if you get back, Master Peyton, if and you see him, you tell him I'm here waiting for him. You hear? Uh, yeah, I'll I'll do that, Jethro. I'll do that. You get away from there fast, the shells of the road crunching under your muddy boots. That grinning savage standing in the doorway of the shack, the knife in his hands. And each moment until the road bends and cuts off the cabin from view, you fear he'll come after you, the knife poised to plunge in your back, to pay you for the thrust you gave him when you sent him away to die. But he's still standing, grinning foolishly and waving as you turn the bend. Now you feel safe, but only for a moment. Then you hear a sound. The sound of a horse. It must be the corporal in gray from the 5th Massachusetts regulars. He's coming back down the road, searching for you, hounding you, coming to take you back to Owl Creek Bridge, back to a rope that won't break under your weight. You walk faster and faster, and always the sound is there, growing louder and louder. And you run as fast as you can down the shell road, which stretches clear to the horizon between the green walls of scrubby pines. How long have you been running down this endless road? It's dark now. Is it night? Or has the blood trapped in your head by the suffocating rope at last burst into your congested eyeballs and blinded you? Will it next pour from your swollen and bruised neck into your brain, stopping all sensation, instantly bringing to a welcome end this day of agony and flight? Ridiculous fantasies of fatigue and fear. You can see the darkness is the black of a sudden summer storm. That lightning flash clearly shows the white road ahead and the black silhouettes of trees along the sides. And since you're sure that you can see, the other senses return. You hear the rumble of the thunder. You feel the insupportable ache of your straining lungs, the leaden weight of your tired feet. And now the patter of rain, first washing the stinging sweat from your scratched and bitten face, now pounding harder, flowing down across your hatless head, matting your hair, slowing your headlong gate to a dog trot. Another flash of lightning directly overhead. For an instant, you see the soldiers of Owl Creek Bridge standing at the side of the road, rifles leveled, their eyes boring down the sights, aiming at your heart. Again, you're running, and the rain has turned to hail. Pellets as big as harmony beat down on you, pound your swollen, bruised neck, hammer at your countless cuts. Again, the lightning. And on the other side of the road, the gray-clad corporal sits astride his horse, waiting for you. No! No, you can't get me now! No! This bolt of lightning strikes a tree ahead of you, and in the white blinding light stands Jethro, black and grinning, knife raised in the air. No! No, Jethro! Forgive me! Forgive me! He's gone, 
And now you see dangling from each tree along the road a noose swinging in the wind. Wherever you turn, wherever you look, a noose waiting for you. A noose which wriggles like a water moccasin. Ah! You are standing on the green lawn of your plantation before the high-columned entrance. The storm is over. The clouds are black and menacing all around the horizon. But through a break in the sky overhead, glorious sunlight streams down, bathing your garden and your house in heavenly light. You are home. And now you hear a rustle of crinoline. And down from the wide portico steps your beloved wife. She walks across the wide lawn, arms outstretched. Peyton, my dear, you're back, just as you promised you'd be. For this moment, you have endured the agonies of this day. And were those agonies multiplied a thousand times, they would be small price for the venison of this breast, the sanctuary of these arms, the security of these lips. You step forward to fold your wife in your embrace. The rope stretched tight, sang like a bowstring. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of Owl Creek Bridge. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and tonight brought you An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce in a radio adaptation written by Mr. Robeson. The part of Peyton Farquhar was played by Harry Bartell. The narrators were Bill Conrad and Bill Johnstone. Jethro was played by Louis Van Ruten. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Next week... You are trapped in the pitch darkness of a ruined mansion and groping for you, stalking you, is a homicidal maniac armed with a knife from whom you must escape. Next week, we escape with Joseph Hergesheimer's gripping story, Wild Oranges. Good night, then, until this same time next week when we again offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Music